invite you to join me in taking up your Bibles, turning in them to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, for our study this morning. As we look to the Word of God found here, place we're going to be camping for a little while so that you can get all the views and miss none. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the discussion of elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, of the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs, useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Would you please bow in prayer with me? And Lord, we pray you prepare our hearts for your word this day. We confess, Lord, at times we can be hard of heart, hard of mind, and hard of hearing, not wanting to accept all that it is that you would teach us from your word, but would rather pick the morsels that we prefer. Lord, we pray that we would, in our maturity, try everything on your table and grow thereby. The difficult to chew as well as the sweet treats which you always put within. Bless this church body that meets here, Lord, and bless this pastor. We each acknowledge our weaknesses and need for the Holy Spirit to overcome our flesh, even on this, the Lord's Day, and perhaps especially on this, the Lord's Day, we entreat you, overcome our flesh with your Spirit. And teach us this day, Lord, that our daily bread from your word would be sweet and nourishing and full of growth for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Entitled the series that will come from this chapter, chapter 6 of Hebrews, entitled it, Let Us Go On to Maturity. This, of course, comes from chapter 6, verse 1. Let us go on to perfection, as the New King James has it. Better translation let us go on to maturity or completeness. Let us go on. 
We began this call to go on to maturity last week, and we highlighted a passage from the Apostle Paul in Philippians, a famous passage, and perhaps so famous because Paul highlights his past life as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, of a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of a keeper of the law to such a fastidious extent that not a single accusation of blame could be attached to his life. He was a perfectionist, he lived in his perfection, and he counted that as his glory. But Paul goes on to say that all of those things he once counted as gain, he now counts as loss and desires to be perfected. He desires to be completed in Christ. And if an apostle needs to be completed and matured, then certainly maybe one or two of us here today might need a little bit of help. Yours truly included. And Paul said, not that I've already attained or am already perfected in Philippians 3.12, but I press on. Not that I've already come to maturity and completeness in Christ, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ has also laid hold of me. Sometimes I just love that, that God laid hold of me. And I press on for that which he laid hold of me for. What purpose did he lay hold of me? Certainly it can't be to rest on my laurels. Certainly it can't be to do a wee bit of preschool work and a little bit of uh, work in the elementary school and stay there. No, this is a call to go beyond the elementary principles of Christ and grow up as a doctrinal, stalwart, mature Christian. And last week we looked at six foundational doctrines. Actually, we looked at four. I had planned to look at six, but we looked at four instead. And so looking this morning, or not this morning, last week, I realized I've got two on the table and a big passage ahead of it. What am I going to do? So today you're actually going to get the end of one sermon and the introduction to another. God help me. And somebody out there just said, God help you. God help us. And he will. So we started looking at six foundational doctrines that are listed here, but not explained in this text. They're listed here as foundational doctrines, but not explained. There is the assumption of the writer of Hebrews that when he even throws out these first terms that we looked at last week, like repentance from dead works, and secondly, faith toward God, and thirdly, the doctrine of baptisms. And fourthly, the laying on of hands, that they would know what that means and can move beyond it. And I think all of us in some ways were sitting there when I asked you, how would you do if someone were to ask you to get up and in an impromptu fashion to the rest of the church, just outline for us really briefly what this doctrine of repentance from dead works is and the doctrine of faith in God. You have 10 minutes. Go. I'm joking. 
I plan on using those 10 minutes all my own. But even the laying on of hands and those types of things and the baptisms in the church, those things which make a believer accepted in the body and known as part of the body and authenticated in the body, we looked at last week. But now we press on. And we press on with Paul uh, to these last final two doctrines that are listed here for us. These two final doctrines deal with future hope. The future hope of a believer, of a Christian. These are things that should be foundational, that are structural to the way in which a Christian must live, move, breathe, and be so that Upon that foundation, greater truths can be built toward a Christian's maturity. And the first of these is resurrection of the dead. Resurrection of the dead. And, you know, this might kind of pass by us in, in our era now, some 2,000 plus years since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Savior. But in the world at large, you realize that it is not common for dead people to rise from the dead. You realize that. We talk about it a lot, but I myself personally have never seen it happen. And don't tell me you have either. You haven't. No one has come back from the dead except those whom we find in the Bible who have done so, all by the power of God, whether Lazarus or Jesus himself, Jesus being the key that really came back from a spiritual death. The Bible says clearly it's given man, unto man once to die, and after this, the, that's the last one we're going to deal with this morning. Before then, we've got resurrections from the dead. What is this resurrection from the dead? Paul outlines in succinct fashion at his own defense before a Roman court. In Acts chapter 24, Paul faced with his accusers who have come down from Jerusalem, namely Ananias the high priest and the elders from Jerusalem. Yes, those self-same villains who hung Jesus Christ on the cross and denied his resurrection, these now accuse Paul. And Paul has used his Roman rights to demand a Roman trial, lest he be accused without proper justice. This has been granted to him, and he now stands before Felix, a Roman governor. Roman governor in Caesarea, and he's explaining to him his theological background, his belief system uh, that has caused angst among certain of the Hebrews and of the Jews back in Jerusalem, namely the Sadducees. I bring this just to show you the confession of Paul as to what he believed concerning resurrection from the dead. And I pick up the reading in Acts chapter 24, verse 14. Paul now says, But this I confess to you. So he's saying, this is my confession, what I believe to you. 
that according to the way, which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. One of the first names of the church when it was established was the way. Before we were called Christians, and before it was called the Christian church, they were called the way. Uh, this is very Hebraic in understanding the Hebrews' idea of a, a way of life, the path of life, uh, necessitated a following after. And there were indeed disciples of teachers, but Jesus, the great teacher, had disciples, and all who were his disciples followed his way. So there's a sense today as Christians we are followers of a sect, a sect that came out of Judaism, led by a Jew, Jesus Christ, we are of the way, the way of Jesus. So he identifies himself as part of this sect. And he says, I still, though, worship the God of my fathers. This is not a departure from the Hebrew way of life. This is a culmination. Listen. Believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. He didn't deny that those were good things or right things or God things. They are to be believed in. But in verse 15 he says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept. So these here, my accusers, believe in the same God I believe, and I believe what they believe and this is what he goes on to say. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, uh, that there will be a resurrection of the dead. There will be a resurrection of the dead. So if you think you die and that's all there is, Paul says, I don't believe that. I believe there'll be a resurrection of the dead. And of all classes, notice, but of the, both of the just and the unjust, so it doesn't matter if you followed the Lord or you didn't follow the Lord. If you walked in justice and righteousness or unrighteousness with no justice, you'll be resurrected. Verse 16, this being so, see how he builds on that affirmation. This truth being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. I need to disentangle myself from Acts now and move to Corinthians. Lest I teach all the good things that are there, and that's not my intent this morning, only to highlight Paul believes in the resurrection of the dead for all. Now, why is that foundational for a Christian? Why do we build on that foundation unto maturity is because this is about our future. What a Christian hopes in is what he builds upon. What foundation a Christian has in regard to his future hope determines how he builds on that foundation. To call oneself a, a Christian and not believe in the resurrection of the dead is a 
hopeless building project. A purposeless endeavor, why build? For what purpose? And so this lends to the purpose of life. Why are you here and why are you a Christian? Because of the resurrection from the dead. And my hope in it. Okay. Well, how hopeful is that? Ah, I'm glad you asked. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This isn't in your notes. It's a late edition, but a favored one. An entire chapter on this, I, I give it to you for deep meditation. I will only highlight certain verses in it to further ground you in hope. Chapter 15, verse 1. The Apostle Paul now speaking to the church in Corinth, a church that has struggled with divisions, keeping themselves together, even using their gifts of the Holy Spirit in antagonism against each other and trying to make themselves important, if you will, building badly upon their foundation. Paul now, near the end of this book, says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you which also you received and in which you stand. So the good news, I preached it to you, you received it. Verse 2, by which also you are saved. A clause here, conditional. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, meaning unless you really didn't believe, you just said you did, Notice what he says by way of gospel connection. For I delivered to you first of all that which I received, listen, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Death. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to his, the scriptures. Resurrection from the dead. This is the gospel. Skipping now down to verse 20, for I must, we read, But now Christ is risen from the dead, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, or those who have died. What are the first fruits? That's when you go out to the raspberry patch, in the early blush of summer, and you see a little glowing red jewel. There's only one. And it's all yours. No one else is there. There's no one to share with. You can go over to the raspberry bush, pluck that berry off, and savor its sweetness. It is a prophecy of more to come. It is the first of what will come. The most precious of all, that first savor, flavor, delight. Christ, the first fruit. He's the first one to rise from the dead in this way, from the spiritual death unto life.
from the physical death unto life. He's the first fruits before God to be savored and to be understood as an offering even to God. The first fruits of all of those who have died already. That they will bloom again. That they will be fruit in a different way. Verse 21, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Speaking, of course, in verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his order. Listen, Christ the first fruits. He's first. How do I know he's first? Set it right there. He's the first. That's how come I know no one else has been the first fruits. It's him. Afterwards, those who are Christ's at his coming, who are the next ones to be raised from the dead, those who are owned by Christ when Christ comes. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Notice he's not delivering the kingdom to anybody but to his father. Isn't Jesus king of the kingdom? Yes, he is, and he's going to give it to his father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign. For he must reign. Because of the resurrection, he will reign. Because of the resurrection of which he is first fruits, there is hope for the dead. And now I'd like to skip to verse 51. There's much here, and I ask you to read it sometime this week. Verse 51, listen. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Here's the mystery. We shall not all die. But we shall all be changed. Death is not necessarily going to happen to everyone who's in Christ. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. How? Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Is there doubt here in God's word? No. It is guaranteed, it is foundational truth upon which we will build our Christian life. A hope in the future based upon Jesus Christ's resurrection that there will be resurrection for us. That what we do and why we do it is purposeful and we will be resurrected in the end. And he tells us even more. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. Sometimes you ask, why do I have to live in a body like this that's decaying, and that's if you're over 40? If you're under 40, you might be kind of content in the body in which you live. You might be thinking, well, this is pretty good. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm eating what I'm supposed to drink, eat. I'm doing the exercises I'm supposed to do. I've got it happening. Even talk about things like six-packs and you don't mean drinking them. Well, you 
You got one in the middle there. All your muscles show. Oh, isn't this great? No. If that's all there is, I've been there, done that, and that ain't enough. That is not enough. Someone said, I found the fountain of youth. Do you want to go? My answer will be, based on this foundation, no. I have something better for which I wait. You have something better, Christian, for which you wait. This corruption, this thing that's falling apart, must, must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when the corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, listen, death is swallowed up. In victory. If this is all that is, there is, if flesh is all that we got, then it's a hopeless Christianity. There is nothing to build upon. But if this is permanent, and if this is real, and if this is something that God guarantees, which He did, then we build upon it toward the future, not worrying so much about our flesh. We do not need to do dead works of righteousness from the flesh, it gains us nothing. But we have faith toward God, and that faith is in the resurrection as well. We have a hope that death, 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 death will die and be no more. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law dead works but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus and then he says therefore my beloved brethren be steadfast be immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord why are you working if you're working to get saved you're lost and dead in your trespasses and sins if you are laboring because one day you'll be risen from the dead like your Savior, you are found. And your hope is rightly placed. Your foundation is laid. Build upon it. Moving on. The final, the sixth foundational doctrine we find in Hebrews again at the end of verse 2. Verse 2 reads of chapter 6, of doctrines of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Eternal judgment. In Acts 17, Paul, again, he is speaking earlier in his ministry now, and he's made it to Athens, Greece, the place of the foundation of Western civilization. Greeks who love to discuss everything, and so he speaks in the open-air amphitheater, the Areopagus. And he brings to the attention of these people who are there to discuss philosophy and any new thing, that he has seen a statue with no statue on its base, and just a plaque on the base where a statue should be, and it says to the unknown God, he says, this one I come to proclaim to you, this one true God. But then he says, 
this beforehand. He says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. Meaning you're worshiping of idols. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. Listen, why should they repent? Because he, God, has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to us all by raising him from the dead. How do we know there will be a judgment? A judgment by Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. And being alive, he is now the judge with the authority to judge the world in righteousness. That's why you need to turn from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ, the living God, and avoid his judgment. But let me point out, the Bible teaches a resurrection of the saved and a resurrection of the lost. And then comes judgment for both. One group has a future hope. A future hope for the saved. The other has a future terror. There's a future terror for the lost. And everyone knows it. There's not a real honest person who's very honest with themselves, the world around them, or even the truth in their own heart that there is a judgment, there is a come up, it's coming. And it's undeniable. That many of the things done, thought, said will be held to account. Even the deep things hidden will come to light. And there is a fear in the heart of all of those who know that they must stand that judgment themselves. And therefore death has a terror. A foreboding before the saved who by faith, faith toward God, trust in the work of Jesus Christ, paying that price of judgment for sin, there is this. John 5, 20, 24. Jesus himself says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall listen not come into judgment I wonder if he knows what he's talking about I wonder if Jesus is wrong here I wonder if Jesus is in disagreement with Paul Paul says you know given unto man wants to die and after this is judgment Jesus says oh well believe in me no judgment hmm what's going on here He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but listen, has passed from death to life, has passed from the eternal judgment of eternal punishment and death unto newness of life, real life. Do you realize that this isn't real life yet? This is like practice life. This is life with sin present. This is tainted life. This isn't new life. Even as a believer, it's not free. It's burdensome. This is a different kind of life. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is. Listen, he goes right into this. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. You know, there is a day when Jesus is going to speak. When Jesus is going to shout. And it will be an irrevocable, irresistible, can I do this in church? I will call. It will be something that dead people can't resist. And you think, well, if anybody's resistant to the voice of Jesus, it's a dead guy. But they will respond. You know what that gives me hope about is even being a living dead guy when Jesus called your name and said, come believe on me. You came. How'd you come? It was irresistible. That's for free. Chew on that. There's some meat. Has passed from death to life. He says, most assuredly, in case you doubt, it's assured. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. All will hear his voice. And come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil, listen, to the resurrection of death. Eternal judgment. There is an eternal judgment. It is a foundational doctrine for all baby Christians to grow beyond infancy, childhood. We must know these things so that we can mature. For even in the final point of Revelation, and I saw thrones and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The believers of the tribulation judged righteous. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. If you live a powerless Christianity, it's because you don't believe well enough in resurrection and judgment and that your judgment from Jesus will be enter my rest thou good and faithful servant what's the principle the principle in Hebrews 6 is this is that the author of Hebrews mentioned all of these doctrines that I just spent a Sunday and a half preaching and he did not re-teach them he did not re-preach them he gave them a list and assumed they knew them. Let us go on 
to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of doctrines and baptisms and of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. These are basics every Christian must know. Do you know them? And if not, grow stronger. Study more. Don't miss it when you have a chance to learn it. He did not repeat it. I did for you. And the reason being is there's danger ahead. Verse 4 of chapter 6. Here's the introduction to next week. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of of the age to come, listen, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. The short of this is, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. What's happening here? If they fall away, it's impossible. It means they're in danger of abandoning their profession of faith in Christ and leaving it all behind. Here's the basic foundational truths. Here's what's coming. Let's go on to maturity. The writer is beginning to call them into an institute of higher learning. Beginning with this radical, radical confrontation and calling on them and reminding them that advancement is the only solution to falling away. To go on, to push on. I press on toward the goal, Paul said. And in Hebrews 6.3, the writer says, And this we will do if, this we will do if God permits. He realizes that it is God who must help us to go on to maturity, for we are going to have to handle in the coming weeks in this church, can a Christian lose their salvation? It's here in this text that some teach that. What will I teach? What will you hear? Are you mature enough to handle it? I know you are. Because we're here. And like the writer of Hebrews, I press on toward maturity. And I want to preface my sermon next week with a couple words. Well, maybe a few more than a couple on perseverance of the saints. We are faced with a text that says there are those who fall away. And those who fall away, we are faced with a very, very strong statement of impossibility that they would be able to be renewed to repentance. How are we going to understand this? The perseverance of the saints is a ground issue that we have to understand. 
We've touched on it, and some of you know that, in these basic doctrines. But I'm going to turn you into the hands of my professor of theology at the Master's Seminary, Professor Trevor Cragen. And I've given you in your notes much of what I'm going to say so that you will not lose it. I give you Professor Cragen for his ability to didactically and logically and biblically work through an issue. He begins, and I begin with him, with his question. Can a saved person fall away to such a degree that it is impossible to renew them to repentance? In short, can a Christian lose their salvation? Can a Christian lose their salvation? Well, this conundrum is outlined by Professor Trevor Cragen in this way. He says, and I read, and you can follow along if you like, he says, because of one, the warning passages and statements on apostasy in Scripture, as well as conditional sentences, and two, the experience of some who believed and then openly rejected the question has often been asked, he says, can a saved person, can a saved person ever be lost? I now go on to give you a, a look into Professor Cragen's mind, and I believe you will find it helpful as I did. He now become, takes us to a logical progression. He makes this premise. Because the unbreakable chain, the question should be reworded to read. See, we just asked the question, can a saved person ever be lost? He says we need to reword this question, and it should be read thus. Can the very work of God in a saved person be undone. That is good thinking. That is a good way of asking the question from another angle that clarifies the real problem. Dr. Cragen then postulates these, and I'll take them by number. Number one, he says, it seems impossible to conceive of affixing negative prefixes to salvation's terminology. And then he gives us examples. The opposite of regenerate would then be degenerate. It seems impossible to think of degeneration after regeneration. And it seems impossible to think of unpropitiation after propitiation. After Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God by his own work on the cross, can that be undone? Unpropitiate. It seems impossible to uncall the called or to recall the call, he says. Number two. 
He says further, it seems impossible to conceive of the opposite of a text we just read this morning. It seems impossible to conceive of the opposite of passing from death to life. The opposite would be passing from life back to death. It seems impossible, he says. Number three, it seems equally impossible given the declaration of Scripture on absolutely nothing being able to take the believer out of the Father's hand, John 10, 29, or to separate him from God's love, Romans 8, 38 and 39. He says it seems impossible then to conceive of a man's own act doing so. He goes on to clarify, he says the real question is this, is man, and what man does, is man more powerful than God in what he does? Is what a Christian's doing in his life more powerful than what God is doing in his life? Is a question that must be answered biblically. Number four. It is impossible to deny the clear declarations on preservation unto blamelessness at the end. The preservation of God undergirds the perseverance of the Christians. 1 Corinthians, Paul gives us this doctrine. 1 Corinthians 1, 7. He says, So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now pay attention here who will also confirm to you to the end, who will also confirm you to the end, listen, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He is guaranteeing by the call an end result of confirmation. At the end, you will persevere. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul also says, Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you. How far? A little bit? No, sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved. Blameless. Better than being put into a Ziploc bag and put in the freezer preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful who also will what? Do it. It seems impossible that you could fall away, that you could lose your salvation if that be true, and it was. Dr. Cragen goes on, or of being revealed at the end, and he cites Colossians 3. Verse 3, he says, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Where is your life right now, Christian? Well, you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So where are you going to go to get it back so that you can lose it? He knows you'd lose it if left to yourself. That's why it isn't your work. It's his work. It's hidden 
with Christ in God, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also maybe might appear with him in glory. Oh, did I miss something? No, it says, then you also will appear with him in glory. Why? Because your life is hidden there. Colossians 2.10, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. 1 Peter 1.4, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Or he says finally, 6, or being raised up at the end, Jesus himself, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Is man stronger than God? All that the Father gives, come. Why did you come? The Father gave you. Jesus will not cast you out. Why? Because the Father gave you to the Son, and the Son's not going to cast you out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What is that will, you ask? Anticipating this, Jesus said, This is the will of the Father. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose. I should lose. I should lose nothing. Meaning no one, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It seems impossible to lose it. And so now I conclude the introduction to the introduction to the sermon next week. The two, two sides of eternal security, of perseverance. First is on God's side, that God secures the final salvation of all true believers. He preserves the believer. Secondly, on the believer's side, that he perseveres, responding positively to the truth even as God preserves him. So you can't just say, well, God's put me there. I'm in my little Ziploc bag and I'm in the freezer, frozen. And I don't have to do nothing. I'm froze till eternity, but he's going to open it up and then I'll be new. No, that's God's preservation part. Your part is to live, is to persevere. And respond by striving and pressing on. Why should I strive? Oh, let us go on to maturity. I'm so tired of maturity, Pastor. Why do you have to keep saying it? Because it's possible if your foundation is right. If you know he's preserving you, then you know when you persevere, it has a point. 
press on to maturity. Therefore, my beloved, here's a verse that encapsulates both. Two verses. Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my present only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? How? Verse 13, Philippians 2. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good purpose. So keep pushing on. Here is a convicting conclusion. Dr. Cragen says again theologically, eternal security, perseverance, cannot be made to mean that the person who believes is saved no matter what he does or how he lives. So you can't say I'm preserved. It doesn't matter what I do, think, say, or believe, or act. No, it does not mean that. Because this would contradict all the moral requirements and all of the imperatives, i.e. commands, and the warnings, the warning we are going to study next week. Why write this if there isn't real danger? Come back next week. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for these words. Bless them to our hearts. Help us adhere to these basic doctrines by faith and by our works of action built upon them. Help my brothers and sisters and help me, Lord, build well on this foundation. Then in a week's time, and in a month's time, and in a year's time, and in 50 years' time, we will see greater maturity in all who are here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.